Okay, let's pray. Lord God, it is a challenging time in our day and age in thinking about sharing the gospel and witnessing because it seems overwhelming to us. And yet at the same time, throughout every generation, there have been challenges. And pray that you would give us peace in our hearts and clarity in our minds and a, and a willingness to be vessels of your Holy Spirit to share your gospel, to witness, to know when you're calling us and to be ready to respond and to trust you and to remember that we're here simply to offer a gift and that we're your instruments. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> into that world, into that world that I was just talking about with Hugh Hefner and this guy Ken, the way people perceive Christians. Okay, take one of each. There you go. The way people perceive Christians today is they are judgmental, they're prejudicial, there's insider, there's an insider mentality. Those who are in, those who are out. That's one way people perceive Christians. Another is we evangelize through culture wars. You know, through moralistic attitude and attacking things through the culture. You know, whether it be letters to the editor, whether it be politicians uh, and political power and might, whatever it is. But that's one way people perceive Christians. That's why you hear these terms thrown out in the media. Fundamentalists. The Christian right, you know, and even Christian bigots or what, I mean, you'll hear all kinds of terms. And part of the reason is, is because that's how some Christians really treat other people, or that's their attitude, or both. And so that's one perception out in the culture that we have to deal with. The other is that we are um, sometimes found... And we find people blending into the world in our language, behavior, lifestyle, so that we're barely distinct from the world. And you'll see Christians who do that too. You know, they so compromise with people around them, you're barely able to discern any kind of Christian lifestyle or witness. Because we're like everybody else. You know, when, when people in the world say, you know, why are you going to church on Sunday? Oh, I don't have to go this Sunday. Why? What do you want to do? You know, boom. Throw, throw it away. Because we're going to fit in with them. We don't want to stand out before the world. Or we just love everybody. So we're never willing to speak the truth in the situations. Because we say we just love everyone and we want to be nice to everyone. You know, as if Jesus came to be nice. And all you have to do is read the scriptures and know Jesus didn't come to be nice. He came to love people. But he spoke truth into people's lives. Which means he would not always be perceived to be nice. In fact, I have often joked about if people today saw Jesus in a crowd, sometimes they would look at Jesus and say, well, that's not being very Christian. I guarantee you. When he was overturning the money changers' tables, well, that's not being very Christian. He was saying, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. When he called them sons of the devil in John 8. I mean, you know, there, there are examples that Jesus would be considered not Christian by the secular world's standards today. And it's important to understand what some people perceive, and even Christians, that I'm just here to be nice. 
<coughs> and to love people. That's why I'm here. That's my Christian witness. That's how I share the gospel. Nominalism. Where people say, yeah, I'm a Christian. But it doesn't make a difference in their life. I mean, I hear people out in the community refer themselves as members of St. Luke's that I haven't seen in here in years. <laughs> years. I don't know how you're supposed to tell they're members of St. Luke's outside of the fact that they say it. Because there is no evidence in their lives. None. None. That's a nominal Christian. In name only, if you want to know what nominal means. In name only. True Christianity is word and deed. True Christianity is seeking to love the Lord and honor Him. And allow that to permeate our hearts and lives so that we love other people. That's true Christianity. And we have to study the scriptures to see what that looks like. How did Jesus engage sinners? You know, if you ever want to get your mind around how Jesus engaged sinners, just specifically look at passages sometimes as to how he engaged sinners. Like, for example, one of my favorites is Zacchaeus. You know, Zacchaeus is a short little guy, a notorious tax collector, you know, who would be hated by most of the people around him. And, and Jesus notices him for starters, doesn't criticize him, says, come on down, I've got to have lunch with you today. I've got to go to your home and have lunch with you. That would never happen by the religious leaders of his day. Never. Because he wanted to engage him. And then he basically talks to him about the kingdom of God. And what does he say at the end? Salvation has come to this house today. Zacchaeus obviously repented by the end of it. The woman at the well in John 4. You know, Jesus, without being condemnatory, basically brings up like, you're right when you say you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now isn't your husband. Well, people would say, well, that's pretty judgmental. You know, the reality is he's only speaking truth into her life. It's all he's doing. He's just speaking truth into her life. And the other reality about what he does is he says, you worship what you do not know. People today would be appalled by that. They would be appalled by that. You worship what you do not know. Those who worship the Father must worship in spirit and in truth. So he speaks truth into her life. And he's willing to engage her. And it doesn't come across as condemnatory. Just like in John 8, when the woman who's caught in adultery. You know, I, I wonder, when he wrote in the sand, you know, if you know the story in John 8, the beginning of John 8, if he wrote in the sand, when the guys were watching, where's the man? Yeah. Do you ever wonder what he wrote in the sand? Where's the man? Was this a setup? You trying to trap me? You know, look at your own life. You don't know what he wrote. I mean, I'm just curious what he wrote. <clears throat> but it's interesting how he doesn't condemn them. He just basically says, if you're without sin, just cast the first stone. Leaves it up, open to them to make their own decision about their lives. And then, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Now, that's an interesting line. You know what we often say? No big deal. In other words, go and sin. <laughs> or we tell ourselves, God and I have an agreement. It's okay. I've said this before in a sermon, and some of you may not have been here, when um, 
when I said it, I, I, I do this premarital test. I do uh, several premarital tests for couples that are coming for premarital counseling. And uh, one of them is cohabitating before they're married, living together. And I always get a kick out of that one of the questions is, cohabitating is against my religion, yes or no? And they put no. And I just say to them, where do you see that in the Bible? Well, we're getting married. We thought it was okay. Where do you see that in the Bible? Well, everybody does it today. Where do you see that in the Bible? I just asked them. It's not right, is it? No. <laughs> the rules didn't change. It's really, really interesting just to talk to people. You know, and then you say, we've got to work with that. And one of the ways we're going to work with it is, you've made your own decision up till now. What you need to do if your marriage is really going to thrive is you need to start doing things his way instead of your way. If you want your marriage to thrive. And it starts now. All I'm doing, I tell people, my counseling is as good as your honesty. I'm just holding up a mirror. That's all I'm doing. Jesus held up a mirror a lot before people. It's between you and the Lord. I'm not here to be judge, jury, and executioner. I'm just here to hold up a mirror. Take a look. And oh, by the way, the mirror is going to be scripture, not me. Just so you know. The leper. The leper was considered unclean, untouchable. And Jesus touched him. Jesus reached out to him. Jesus was willing to cross barriers that a lot of people in his day and age weren't willing to cross. And John 8, when he goes after the Pharisees and Sadducees, you know, Jesus was pretty hard on the legalists. You know? He was pretty hard on the legalists. Just read John 8. And you'll go, oh. And by the way, I've been like that. And we could go on and on about how Jesus treats people. And confronts them with truth. Confronts them with reality. Confronts them with the gospel. You know, and Jesus, you need to hear this. Jesus, who was the only perfect person in loving people and morally speaking perfect, did not ever say, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. I don't know if any of you have ever heard that line. That is not Jesus. It's not Mother Teresa either. St. Francis. That is not scripture. St. Francis might have been a good guy in a lot of ways, but that is not scripture. Jesus, who is the perfect person, preached the gospel. Preached the gospel. He preached and taught, he healed, did acts of service and compassion, he confronted, he sought repentance, he loved actively by word and deed. And we need the word. You need to know the word. You need to be in the word. The word is the only, if you look in Ephesians 6, it talks about spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. 
The word is the only offensive weapon of the spirit in order to deal with the challenges that the world throws against you. And if you look at 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is God-breathed, inspired by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. So the man of God, the woman of God, might be equipped for every good work. We need to be equipped. We've got to know the word. It is critical. Teaches us about God and how to love Him. Teaches us how to love others and serve them. Teaches us how to become holy. Teaches us how to engage the world. And our religion, by the way, our religion is not about an it. It's about a him. It's about a person. It's about Jesus Christ. You know, it's not about a set of beliefs. The beliefs, the doctrine come out of the belief in knowing him. That's like, you know, Meredith loves me and I love Meredith. But if you ask us, like, why or what, what do you see in this person, then you start telling, you know, some particulars. You know, maybe some of them, not all of them. <laughs> but the reality is that, you know, there are reasons, there are traits, there are character traits, there are aspects. There's things we share. There's activities we do together. I mean, but it's the person. And that's what we have to remember. And if you look at Acts 17, that's what you see. You see the reference to a relationship, a person. And we're here to respect other people too. Some of the keys, if we're going to start sharing the gospel, these are things to keep in mind. The first is you have got to have accessible language. You have got to figure out where the person is and what the person can understand. And I'll tell you right now, words like Theologically speaking, we'll work with people who are theologically astute. Most are not. Or, eschatologically, <laughs> that ain't going to fly. Okay? You know, when you start talking about end times things, that's really great because it may happen soon. It may not happen soon. But if you start talking about eschatology, it's the, you know, premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, you know, all that kind of stuff. People don't care. You know? Blood of the Lamb. That's a very significant term for Christians. People that have no idea what Christianity is, that is like, what are you talking about? That might connect with some Jews. It will not connect with an atheist who's never heard about the Bible. You have to be careful about the language that you choose. Even words like covenant. I love the word covenant. I really do. Like when you think about the covenant of marriage. I love the word covenant. That's lost on a lot of people. A lot of people think about a marriage as a contract. The word covenant is different. So there's words that you can unpack in your mind as you're sharing what the gospel and what a relationship with the Lord is all about. What's really, really helpful is to share that you have been flawed. You have flaws that you had to have to deal with. When you even talk about sin, that term might be lost on people. But if you say, you know, I screwed up, I've messed up, I have flaws. That's why I need a Savior. You know? That kind of language can connect with people. Jesus told parables, but invited repentance. We have to remember that. Repentance is critical. And it may come down the road, it might not come immediately. That's okay. The other thing is respect. 
When you're sharing the gospel with people, you have to respect the people you're sharing the gospel with. And you also have to respect people that they respect. And you have to learn how to make connections with people that they may respect what they've written, what they've said, people in the world. You know, because you can actually really work those angles if you know how. Let me give you a couple of examples. There's a philosopher by the name of Thomas Nagel. And he says, I'm, not, I'm just not an atheist. I don't believe in God. And I hope I'm right. <laughs> what does that tell you? What does that tell you? It tells you that there's enough of a doubt in his mind that he knows the ramifications if he's wrong. Well, you know what? That's the time to bring out, if you remember, I, I did this before, and I've done it in the discovery class for those of you who've been through it. Pascal's Wager. Pascal's Wager. Let's talk about that. You know, you can say, let's talk about that. I mean, I would love to talk to that guy. Let's talk about that. You know? Because you can engage them where they are. And this guy's a famous philosopher. But you just heard what he said. I hope I'm right. You know, it's, it's probably tongue-in-cheek or funny or trying to make, you know... But you know what? He just said something that, that you can dialogue with. And you don't have to go about him attacking him. Just say, let's talk about that. <clears throat> because now you have a point of contact. There's a novelist by the name of David Foster Wallace. And he's written a line that's very fascinating. Everyone worships. To worship is a part of our nature. But what do you worship? Who do you worship? Why do you worship what you worship? What does that look like? How does that play out in your life? And what if everybody worshipped something different and they lived into whatever it is they worshipped? What kind of world would that look like? See, I'd love to talk to people like this. You know, he's right. Everyone worships. You know, I've had people say to me, you know, I think I've said this before, but I'll say it again just because I think it's so fun to talk about and it just catches people off guard when you say it. I'm spiritual. I said, great. So Satan. <laughs> people go, ooh, never thought of that. I said, what do you do with your spirit? You know, I mean, the reality is you can always talk to people, you know, just trying to disarm them a little bit, trying to get an opening, trying to get a crack. You know, and all you're doing is speaking truth into people's lives. One time, Meredith and I went to a dinner party. <coughs> and I think some of you, I've told you this, uh, but we went to a dinner party one time. This was years and years ago. And we got somehow, imagine that, involved in a discussion about God and belief in God and all that. And I started pursuing this one woman because I sensed that she was really wrestling, even though she was like, kind of like, well, you know, I kind of believe this, that, you know. And I said to her, well, you basically have made up your own religion. Because there's no real, real religion that fits what it is you're talking about. She said, yeah, I guess I have. So I said, so really the God you worship is you. Because you've created your own religion and it fits everything you want it to be. She started crying. Meredith, when we left her, she said, that was awful. 
<laughs> I said, no, it wasn't. It was great. I said, the Holy Spirit landed on her like crazy. And she was convicted. I said, I don't know whatever happened to her. But the Holy Spirit convicted her. Why would she start crying when I said that? Isn't that fascinating? This is a dinner party. Everybody's going, <laughs> you know? I was. But it was the most fascinating thing. All I said was, well, you're basically the God you worship because everything about God reflects you. All I was doing was stating truth. And she started crying. It was one of the most fascinating encounters that I've had. Just because I really wasn't being mean or attacking or anything. I just stated that. And I am convinced the Holy Spirit just absolutely convicted her. I'm convinced. That's what was going on there. Because why otherwise would she start crying? We need to understand people's doubts, their objections, their faith positions that they hold. We need to offer intelligent, sensitive, non-defensive responses as much as possible. We need to affirm people when possible. Jesus said to somebody, you're not far from the kingdom of God. That's not a bad thing to say. You're not far. You're close. You see that commercial <laughs> lately with um, Peyton Manning? This guy's playing the guitar nationwide is on your side. He says, you're close. You're close. <laughs> he said, we're almost there. You know, I mean, you know, some people are really close. They really are. And they have a heart that's pursuing the Lord. Um, so we need to avoid being defensive or combative. Um, uh, we need to nurture the spark in people. Yes, hold it, Patty. Hold it. Oh, you don't have a question? It's, it's not Peyton Manning with the guy playing the guitar. It's Brad Paisley. Yes, that's why I said Peyton Manning is the one in the commercial. Brad Paisley is the one playing the guitar. Exactly, yeah. We need to avoid the we versus them mentality. Loving them mentality into the kingdom is much better. But versus them doesn't always work real well. Not everyone knows everything. Okay, when you say, why everyone knows that? Not everyone knows that, especially today. Don't make assumptions about where people are. Um, And we need to learn to apply the gospel to situations. And one of the ways that we can apply it is if someone comes back attacking you, forgive them. Forgive them. Don't attack back. Don't retaliate. Just forgive them. It's the best way to witness in a situation where you're trying to talk about the gospel. Uh, Always seek to have a gospel motivation. Um, You know, and talk about with with people your disappointment, your hurt. Uh, Try to avoid generalizations. You know, talk to people about their parents, their children, your parents, your children. Try to talk to your children about your parents. Make connections where possible. Anytime it's possible to make connections. Common ground. Common ground. So that you can begin to connect with people. That's really, really important. And a missionary mentality is really, really critical. 
Because missionaries don't go into places and absolutely just annihilate people verbally. That doesn't work too well. Okay? Let me tell you one thing that I learned a long time ago from a guy by the name of Ralph Winter. Let me try to get on this side. I'd be more helpful. Ralph Winter was a guy who worked at the Fuller School of, uh, well, actually the Fuller Seminary. And then out of that, he started the School of World Mission and Evangelism. And this is back in the 70s. Okay? And what he did was really, really helpful for me. trying to evangelize someone, recognize there are barriers, every layer that you have to encounter with people when you're doing mission or evangelization work. Like, for example, the first layer is clearly a different belief system. The second layer might be a different cultural difference. The third layer might be a different socioeconomic group. The fourth layer might be a different language. And so on. Every layer you encounter makes it more difficult to share the gospel with people. And learning to overcome those layers, that's why missionaries will take years and years and years sometimes before they reach a people group. Because they've got so many layers to work through and share the gospel with. And that's why you... you, you will hear these stories about people being in the mission field for five years, ten years, fifteen years before they have their first convert, or before they have their first small church gathering. And then once they do get someone, then they start evangelizing each other, and there's far less barriers. You know what I mean by that? That's why getting indigenous missionaries raised up is so great. Because then they start evangelizing each other. Understand? And that's why encountering the culture in which we live now there's a huge barrier. One that, I've said this before, I'll say it again, didn't exist before. People think they know Christianity and it doesn't work. Or it's passe. Or Christians are ignorant. Or Jesus never really rose from the dead. That's supernatural. We don't believe in the supernatural. So, not believing in the supernatural might be one of the barriers you have to overcome today. Not believing that Jesus you know, really rose from the dead for non-Christians because that's the supernatural. I mean, we could go on and on about the barriers that you encounter today. Jesus was just a good ethical teacher. And people were being selective about faith. Their whole understanding and idea of what faith and religion is is no longer objective. It's no longer a particular religion. It's their own making. What a huge barrier that is. So think about all the barriers that you're encountering today when it comes to evangelization. It's huge. And sometimes, you know, sometimes you just have to present the gospel and give the Holy Spirit room to operate. <clears throat> Secondly, sometimes evangelism is just done in layers. You know, Paul talks about in Corinthians, one, one plants the seed, another waters, God gives the growth, that you may be the one to plant the seed, you may be the one to water. But ultimately, when the harvest happens, you may not be around to see it. That's reality, too. 
Evangelism today is often a process. It might take months, years before someone comes to the Lord. You don't know what's going to be the breaking process. Or, uh, but it's intentionality, it's patience, it's perseverance, it's loving them. And being a constant witness to them. That's what it's going to be. Why is it some people think you only get one shot? Sometimes you only get one shot. Sometimes you can do it over and over and over and over again. I've talked about my brother. I just constantly look for openings with my brother. Always. So, that's the way it works. Now, I'm going to talk about different models of evangelism that I have experienced through my life. That I've done, if you will. The first model of evangelism or sharing the gospel was done with Young Life. It's a Christian outreach for high school kids. Non-denominational. Your basic goal, basically when it comes to sharing the gospel, is you start off by, and I started a Young Life Club. Let me start there. Let me back up. When I was 20 years old, I started a Young Life Club in high school. Okay? And the way I started was, I went to the high school, and I hung out. I met kids. I looked like a kid. Okay? I had hair down to here. Okay? And smoked cigarettes. Back then, there was no stigma attached. I went to the smoking area, and I'd ask kids for a light. And I'd start engaging them in conversations. I'd go to the football games. I'd start building relationships with kids. And then I'd invite them to the Young Life Club. I was a full-time college student. I was a waiter in a restaurant. I was dating Meredith. And I started the Young Life Club. Okay? Just so you understand my time. But part of my time was spent at the high school one day a week and at football games and basketball games one time a week, intentionally seeking to hang out with kids. By the end of the first year, I had 40 kids coming to Young Life Club. All I did was go and meet them, show them that I cared. What is the sweetest word to a kid? You know what the sweetest word to a kid is? Anyone ever hear this? Their name. What? Their name. That is the sweetest word to a kid. You know a kid's name. It makes a huge difference. And back then, I never missed a name. Well, I'm okay. Back then, I was excellent. And so that really, really helped my ministry. And I'll tell you, it's just contact work, contact work, contact work. Being out there with the people. Who did that? Jesus. Jesus went where they were. And then he was intentional about sharing the kingdom of God with them. We call it today sharing the gospel. And we used to have four talks that we rotated. Sometimes one week in a row, sometimes two weeks in a row. If you took them on a retreat, it was one, two, three, four in the course of the retreat. The person of Christ, the need of man, the cross of Christ, and what are you going to do about it? I can do that in my sleep. Okay? That's all you need to do. The person of Christ, the need of man, the cross of Christ, what are you going to do about it? That was my first learning of how to present the gospel. And it started with just going out. What did Jesus say when he sent them on the Great Commission? Go. Go. 
You've got to be out there. And you can't be afraid. Fear doesn't help you to go, and it doesn't help you to love, and it doesn't help you to share the gospel. Secondly, another one, Curcio. Make a friend, be a friend, bring your friend to Christ. Very similar. Very similar mentality. Curcio, make a friend, be a friend, bring your friend to Christ. Pretty basic. You know, and you go to this Curcio course. You know, it's like a short course in Christianity. That's what the word Curcio means. And so over the course of a weekend... But that's another model of doing evangelization. Most people who do that, they actually say to people, why don't you go to Curcio? Because they don't always feel comfortable sharing the gospel. I think we all need to get comfortable sharing the gospel. But Curcio is another way. Evangelism Explosion. Anybody ever hear of Evangelism Explosion? Called EE. Does anyone remember how you start with someone when you do EE? Two questions. Let me ask you the two questions. If you died today, do you know that you would go to heaven? Not wonder if, no. Secondly, when you died and you got to heaven, and God were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Jesus, I hope. <clears throat> That's the two questions. They're fairly confrontational questions if you think about it. You know, they really are. Not in a mean way. They're just confrontational. They're getting to the heart of the matter. But let me tell you what we would do with this. We would knock on people's doors and we would go in and we would ask those questions. Sometimes they visited the church, sometimes we did cold calling. But the two questions, that's evangelism explosion. And then there were five points that you had to learn along the way. Grace, man, God, Christ, faith. And there were two points under each of those. You know, it's amazing how when you go over something over and over again every week, and you learn it, how you can name those things. Like, for example, grace. That it's a gift, cannot be earned and deserved. Man is a sinner, cannot save themselves. I mean, I could keep going, okay? But I mean, the bottom line is, there's two points under each of those main headings. Um, but that's, that's the evangelism explosion model of sharing the gospel. And uh, Mary, at the church that we joined when we got married, uh, she was the evangelism explosion secretary for several years. That was her job because they had such a large evangelism explosion program. Yes, sure. Yeah, have you ever heard of Christ Renews Parish? The what? Christ Renews His Parish. Christ Renews His Parish. Uh uh-uh. uh. It's a it's, it's another like procedure, and we did that in our church. And what you did is you went to one or two of them, and then you would help at the next ones, and the people that went to them helped at the next ones, and yeah. so on. Yeah, very and, similar idea. Yeah, I did that for like four years. Yeah, they have, they have like, for example, other denominations in Asia, Road, 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 Road
The model that I love the most, that I use the most these days, and many of you have seen this in Discovery class, and it is Romans 6.23. If you haven't seen it, here it is. I'm not going to cover it in detail. Romans 6.23. Sin is not just the wrong things we do. The word sin actually means missing the mark. We miss the mark with our lives. Because we're living for ourselves, we're not living for Him. And the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. But there's a big but, okay? But, the free gift, not something you earn or deserve, it's given to you, it's called grace. Of God, it's His gift. Nothing you can do to earn it, to deserve it, is eternal life. Eternally living with Him, beginning now. Not when you die, beginning now. That you walk with Him for all eternity. How does it come? Through Christ Jesus. Christ means anointed one, Jesus means Savior. And He wants to be the Lord of your life. Not just a good idea, not just your Savior, but the Lord of your life, to take over your life. How do we get from this side to this side? Through Him. Okay? That's how you get from one side to the other. Through Him. Okay? That's how the two sides get connected. Through Jesus. The first step is believing. You have to believe that Jesus is the Christ. That He died for your sin. That you can't do anything to earn it. You just have to accept Him as Savior and Lord. The second is... You must surrender. Because in order for Him to be truly the Lord of your life, you have to surrender everything. You can't continue to try to sit on the throne of your life. And there's wonderful illustrations, and again, I teach these in discovery class. If you've never been through, it's a great class to go through. You know, for example, three sins a day. You all remember that? You've been through the discovery class, three sins a day. We say in our confession, thought, word, and deed. Every Sunday, you know, I've sinned by thought, by word, by deed. And I say to someone, imagine, you know, because people like me, they love to say I'm basically a good person. Imagine that you've sinned once in each of those areas today. Once by word, once by thought, once by deed. Okay? You've got a pretty good day. Okay? Okay? But... Multiply that over a year. How many sins do you have? Over a thousand. Multiply that over a lifetime. Over 70,000. 
walk into traffic court and say, I have over 70,000 moving violations, but I think I'm a pretty good driver. <laughs> How's that work? You know? I mean, but that's what we say to a holy God. You know, the reality is it just doesn't work. That's why we need a Savior. And that's what I tell people, and it's really a wonderful, wonderful illustration to think about. But most people don't realize that they've missed the mark with their life. And people are really, really open to something like this when they're facing a crisis and when they're facing their demise. That's when they're really open to this. Because they begin to ask questions. And you're just praying for an opening. You're praying for the Holy Spirit to make it obvious to you, you know, when should I share? How should I share? You look for those openings. You pray. You talk to someone. You make points of connection. And then you share. And most people really have never had someone honestly share without defensiveness, without judgmentalism. This is the gospel. This is who Jesus really is. And this is what he did for you. And look, I love you. And I want you to be there with me. You ever thought about giving your life to Christ? That's it. Not hard. I was just recounting, I haven't thought about this in a long time. I was recounting this uh, story to someone uh, just today. That there was a couple in this church years and years ago, the Morgans. They both had Parkinson's. How unusual is that? And they, were, and they were wealthy enough that they stayed in their apartment at the, at the uh, Cyprus until she died. And then he eventually moved to Dakwa Island. And he moved his caretaker's family with him to take care of him until he died. But when she died, he was this brilliant guy. I mean, that's why he was so wealthy. I mean, he was very wealthy. But he was this brilliant guy. And he wrote this book on having Parkinson's and his wife having Parkinson's. And he asked me to read it. It was a manuscript, really. And we dialogued about it. Anyway, Eric, um, when his wife died, he asked me to come to see him. And he said, I'm afraid of death. And I don't know where my wife is. And I shared the gospel with him. This guy has Parkinson's. He's shaking constantly, very weak legs fell on his knees in tears in his living room and he said, that's what I want. You don't think that's a privilege? I mean, that guy's eternity's changed. That's what I'm talking about. I mean, if you've never had that experience, it's, it's like you drive away from there saying, what I've just been a part of such a privilege it's just amazing and I've had that privilege on a variety of occasions first time it happened in my first parish that I served this guy was 31 years old he was the son-in-law of one of my crotchety members of the church I was his youngest and she said my son-in-law is dying of cancer he's an atheist and they won't talk to anybody about it and I walked in the room and the guy is laying in bed like this. He's angry as anything. Motorcycle guy. 
And I said to him, I said, Randy, I said, your mother-in-law asked me to come over here. Wouldn't answer. And I said, I'm the pastor of your church, the assistant pastor. I said, I just have one question for you. You're about to meet the Lord. Are you ready to meet him? Tear down his face. I said, I'll help you if you want it. He came to the Lord. We had a great relationship. I was there when he died. I mean, I'm telling you, unless you've had those experiences, I mean, it is such a privilege. I can't tell you. But it takes sometimes a little boldness. When someone's there like this, won't even look at you. But he gives you opportunities. You just have to be willing to take them. Sometimes you have to be a little pushy. That's never really been a problem for me. (laughs) Anyway, we're out of time. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the gift that you've given to us in your son, Jesus Christ. The gift that we're also able to share with other people. But Lord, sometimes we're fearful and sometimes we have our own self-doubts. Sometimes we're hesitant because of the culture in which we live. The people that we know that are defensive and even angry. And yet, Lord, you desire that people would be saved. Lord, give us a total trust in you. A prayerfulness that would make us always ready to share your gospel. Lord, eyes to see when you're calling upon us, ears to hear. And Lord, equip us to be willing to share your gospel with those around us. Especially those we know and love that do not know you. Give us patience and persistence. Give us the ability to be able to articulate and connect and to find those points of connection and to be those disciples like you sent those first disciples forth to go and make other disciples. Bless us and keep us until we gather again in your name and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.